The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. This episode of The Curbsiders is brought to you in partnership with the American College of Physicians, ACP members, and claim free CME and credit at www.acponline.org forward slash curbsiders. All right, Paul, let's let's get right down to it. We have a great show today. We are talking about GERD and dyspepsia with our fantastic guest, Dr. Oxentenko. But before that, Paul, just remind people very quickly, what's the meaning of life? What do we do on this show? <laughs> and then tell them about our guests. Sure. And I'd, I'd be remiss in mentioning that we are Sansa Stewart tonight. And I just, I could not be sadder because there are so many potential for pun here that he's missing out on. It's a spicy meatball, burning questions, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> so forth and so on. So, Stewart, um, you're in our thoughts and prayers. Anyway, um, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, and boy, do we have a an expert interview for you now who's going to be talking about both GERD and dyspepsia. We have the good fortune of talking to Dr. Amy Oxentenko. Dr. Oxentenko is a professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. She completed her internal medicine residency, chief residency, and her GI fellowship at the Mayo Clinic. And she was the recipient of the IM Residency's Outstanding Achievement Award, the GI Division's Bargain Award, and the Institutional Mayo Brothers Distinguished Fellowship Award. That is a lot of awards. She has served as Associate Program Director for the GI Fellowship and Associate Program Director for the Internal Medicine Residency Program before taking over as the Program Director of the GI Fellowship Advanced Fellowship Programs, a role she held for three years before she took over as the Internal Medicine Residency Program Director and also a lot of directorships. Dr. Oxentenko has served as the Associate Chair for Education for Gastroenterology and is now an Associate Chair for the Department of Internal Medicine. She has written for GI Mixap 14 and 15 and was the GI Book Editor for Mixap 16 and 17. NGI content writer for ACP's IM in training examination. She is the recipient of the Department of Internal Medicine Distinguished Contributions to Medical Education Award, Mayo's Program Director of the Year Award, and Mayo's Prestigious Distinguished Educator Award. She joined the ACG Board of Trustees in 2017 and became one of the senior associate editors for AJG in 2019. And it is with great pleasure that we now present our interview with Dr. Amy Oxentenko. And no pun. <laughs> I feel like we always have to say that to fill fill the silence when Stuart's not here. Right, sure. Fill the void in our hearts and our stomachs. <laughs> All right. Amy, thank you for joining us. This has been a long time coming. As I as I told you in pre-recording, you you were much requested by our audience, so we're glad to finally have you here. Oh, I'm excited to be here. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> yeah, so I told you we have some e- easier questions up front. I guess maybe just one or two easy questions. What is, give give a one-liner to the audience and maybe include a hobby or interest outside of medicine. I would love to do that. So my one-liner, I am a 40-something-year-old internist at heart, gastroenterologist by training, internal medicine program director in a dual physician marriage with three teenage children who loves distance running, and I have a very abnormal addiction to reality TV. <laughs> I don't know how I, I wish it was abnormal, I don't think it's but I don't think yeah. it is. <laughs> well, now, I'm, now that I guess that depends. What reality TV are we talking about specifically? So, you know, I Survivor came out when I was a resident, actually. Sure. And so I think I've watched every episode of every season of Survivor. I actually own a Survivor buff, and sometimes <laughs> I will pull it out when our residency does fitness challenges. Um, 
And so I always had this dream that it would be the coolest thing to be on Survivor. But in the last few years, and I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but there's a different reality TV show that brings Survivor to a new level called Naked and Afraid. So I don't know if anyone has watched that. I've, but- I've seen clips. Uh, I have not watched it. <laughs> Yeah. So the premise is odd in that, you know, it's this man and woman who've never met. They're like dropped into the middle of some, you know, either desert or, you know, or the Arctic. Yeah, yeah. Sure. some extreme weather. They don't they're not provided any clothing, which is the awkward part of it. And they each can bring one survival tool, a knife or a pot for water. And they have to be out there for two to three weeks usually. And so, you know, they have the extreme of hot, cold bug infestation. Um, eating, you know, snakes or rodents or things like this. So I think that would be my limit. I, I think that is probably beyond my capabilities, but it's cool <laughs> to imagine that people I mean, are brave attitude. enough to do that. <laughs> I've I've heard that's a really, I, I've heard people recommend that show actually. Yeah. yeah. The, the title, it sounds like it's going to just be such, you know, nonsense, but it sounds yeah. like it's actual, like these yes. people actually have survival skills, right? They're not just total Absolutely. total novices are they allowed <laughs> right. to, are they allowed to make clothes for themselves while they're there do they just start out naked and they can at least clothe themselves especially if they're in the arctic <laughs> you would think that they would um in the the ones in the arctic sometimes they've taken some animal skin and made a fur but most of the time they actually don't even try to use leaves or something to make a little you know coverage yeah. um so a little bit surprising but maybe they just get so comfortable with it and when it's 108 degrees, maybe having nothing on is better than having a, a leaf wardrobe. I don't know. So I, you know, I don't want to, we could spend the entire episode on this. I, I feel now, but, like, but so I don't think I realized they were survivalists. Like I'm, I'm less interested now. Like if they were like, you know, like a cashier from target or like a 44 year old <laughs> weak internist like myself, like I feel like that would be compelling television. Like if they're already good at it, then, then it becomes well, less interesting. But I think um, survivalists is probably a stretch. Like they, they are just, you know, someone in their home environment who likes to teach some survival skills at a camp, or maybe they do a lot of fishing and hunting, but that is kind of their survival skill. So they're all given a survival rating at the beginning of the show. And at the end of the show, they're given another survival rating. Most of the time it goes up unless they've bailed on the whole experience. (laughs) (laughs) And it plummets. (laughs) They die, then it goes to zero. Yeah, that's that's fair. Well, uh, if any reality TV producers are listening, Amy is interested. Oh, yeah. I think <laughs> I've only just met her, but I think she'd do a great job. I agree. Mark Burnett, call us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Paul, I think it's your turn. Did you want? Did you want to? We've gone off on a tangent. I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean it was. This is important stuff, and I, I think I'm going to ask my usual book recommendation question. It doesn't have to be a medical book, but just something you think people should read. Yeah, it is. It is a medical book of sorts. Um, the book is Blind Eye by James Stewart. So I don't know if either of you have read this, but mm. I read it back when I, I think I first came involved in graduate medical education. So it details the training years and beyond of a Dr. Michael Swango. And uh, he was later found to have killed a number of patients. And as he went through his training programs, all of these patients were dying under all of these unusual circumstances. And no one could really put the finger on what was going on until all of the pieces later were put together. But this trainee went to multiple training programs under multiple specialties before people really figured out what was going on. Um, So I think for those of you who have ever listened to the podcast, Dr. Death, which is obviously just this incredulous story, this is very similar, but it's, it's just bone chilling that this 
training, went through so many training programs, and so many patients were ultimately killed from his activities, which was later discovered. So I think as a training director for any chief residents, actually, I buy this book usually for my chief residents at you know beginning of the year at Christmas time just to read, <laughs> just to show the importance of what we do in graduate medical education right. and how if a trainee is struggling, and let's say a trainee would ever leave a training program, well, you really feel the sense of responsibility to make sure that patients are ultimately cared for. So it is a, it is a um, like I said, you'll read the book and you won't believe the story, but it is a true story. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> The book recommendation I planned on having later in the show is much less heavy than that. Um, <laughs> well, uh, why don't we follow that up with your favorite failure? I think now's... <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't missing a serial killer who was in your residency <laughs> class. We're just going to go from dark to darker here, aren't we? So, um, yeah, this was for sure the hardest question. And I've had a lot of failures. So maybe the challenge was finding the one that I would best want to share. But I think... Again, thinking of the listeners and those who are either trainees or going along in their medical training, you know, I was in college. I was a grade student. I was in college athletes. I worked a number of jobs to pay for college, but I completely bombed the MCAT. And part of that was because I didn't, I wasn't in any um, prep courses. I didn't even get a book to prep myself for this MCAT. And I was at a liberal, liberal arts school where I really didn't have multiple choice tests to even practice on. All of our tests were, you know, long answer, essay. And I think when I applied to med school, I was put on a number of wait lists. And again, the test itself didn't bother me, but I had an advisor at the time that told me that I shouldn't bother applying to medical school. So at that time, I, you know, I honestly didn't even really have an, a, a plan to t- retake the MCAT or to reapply. I moved to Chicago for the summer and I was a lifeguard, which was the coolest thing to do for the <laughs> summer, um, something everyone wants to do. And a week before medical school um, started, I got a call that I was accepted into um, the medical school class. And I think the lesson I learned from that is, first of all, a test should never define somebody. But also, I think I went into med school with this huge imposter syndrome. You know, I'm not supposed to be here. I barely made it into this class. And so I think it really, it really drove me to work hard and to prove, you know, that I was supposed to be there. And so, you know, long story short, I went through medical school. I was able to get to my top residency program. I'm now running like the coolest residency program in the country, bias, obviously. <laughs> um, but all of that started with someone who was told that they shouldn't apply to medical school. So... It's a, it's a failure, but uh, boy, I learned a lot and I had a great success out of that failure. I think that's, that's a, a fantastic answer. example. Um, did you want to give any other advice to, the, to, to our listeners, uh, either learners or teachers out there? I think the best advice that I really follow through to on this day was given to me by Dr. Joe Kolar. So he was a gastroenterology colleague of mine and actually he was the residency program director here two program directors ago, and he always told me to never accept an offer for anything, whether it's a committee position, a paper, uh, you know, any role opportunity until you've slept on it for an evening. And, you know, think of how often we say yes to things. And the minute we say yes, you have this pit of regret in your stomach and wonder why you said yes, you you know that you're not going to have time to do it justice. And so I really held that advice near and dear to my my heart. Uh, I think a, a night of thinking about things brings clarity to so many things. You realize that, boy, I'm overcommitted. I don't have time to do this unless I give something else up and make time and space for it. So I've had 
you know, individuals call me for opportunities and I'll say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, let me think about this tonight. I'll go back to you tomorrow. And they act like, what, why wouldn't you just say yes to this? But it just makes you feel so much better about your yes when you've had time to think about it. And it also makes it much easier to say no once you've given the thought to it and realize you just don't have the time or space to do it. Yeah. I, I, I know uh, this uh, this one podcaster that I listened to was writing an entire book about how to say no, and then midway through the book realized that uh, he needed to say no to finishing the book. <laughs> and <laughs> I think it's excellent. now going to be like a series of blog posts, but it it is it's really hard to do because like right. you in the moment, I think what you're describing is you don't want to like insult or disappoint the person, but then if you say yes to something you didn't want to do or didn't have time to do, it might make other things go worse. And you're just going to resent the fact that you now have this obligation that you, right. you know, said yes to just to feel good in the moment. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. That's right. One part of it is maybe a little bit of the, the imposter syndrome we all have too. Like it's, if I say no now, or if I ask to sleep one, they'll just give it to somebody else who's more qualified than me is sort of this, the secret fear or somebody mm-hmm. who wants it more. But if you're being asked for anything, it's because they want you to do it. So if, if they're, if they're asking, they should be willing to wait at night for an actual answer. Yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Paul, l- looking at the time here, uh, I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna, I'll save a, my pick of the week for a later time. Did you wanna? Did you have any anything you wanted to get to, or do you want to get into the cases? Eh, nothing burning. I've always got like 20 things I could recommend, but yeah, we can <laughs> okay. we can defer for other shows. We have more time to fill. Yeah. All right. So you want to start us off with a case here? Yeah, I would love to. And I, I'm so disappointed that Stuart's not with us, uh, as we may have pointed out, because I've actually inserted a couple of puns into this case just, just to I, go to I was shocked, Paul. <laughs> I'm not proud of him. Um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll start with the case of poor Mr. Uh, Arthur Burns, who's a 50-year-old white male who comes in with a past medical history of type 2 diabetes, thinks his last day once he was 6.9%, high blood pressure, obesity with a BMI of 34 tobacco use, let's call him a half a pack a day smoker, and DJ to the knees, who's coming to your primary care office for routine follow-up. Except now he's starting to report some heartburn symptoms. So this has been happening a couple of times per week. Seems more noteworthy on the weekend, especially if he's had a few beers to drink while watching football. The heartburn is also seems to be brought on by spicy foods, tomato sauce, and it particularly seems worse at nighttime or when he's lying flat. So, but before we get into how we're even going to sort of manage uh, poor Mr. Burns here, I, I thought we'd start basic. And again, I, I really regret the chance that Stuart could have had to include some sort of pH pun. Um, but we're going to actually... Ask Dr. Oxentenko how how we define GERD. Like, what is what are the defining characteristics, and how do we make a diagnosis of it? Yeah, so I think you know GERD in and of itself is a, a pathologic condition, so to speak. You know, we all have some physiologic reflux that's going on, and we may be completely asymptomatic with it. But when you have patients who have that movement of gastric fluid, which typically is acidic in nature, that comes back into their esophagus and is associated with any symptoms or complications, that really is what defines gastroesophageal reflux disease and takes it from being kind of a normal physiologic thing to an entity that's causing either symptoms and or complications. And from what I was reading too, it's not like some people seem to have problems, even if it's not acidic, it, like just the, reflu- just the reflux sensation in general, they seem to be sensitive to it. Is that is that yeah, absolutely. Of- yeah, because reflux disease or GERD is either, you know, the symptom of heartburn, right? That rising burning sensation retrosternally that comes up the chest, or it could be regurgitation, you know, where you have that food and fluid that comes up into the back of your throat, your hypopharynx, 
And that could be acid or non-acid. I mean, patients who are on acid suppression therapy could still have regurgitation and it's bothersome, but it's non-acid. So yeah, it, it could be acid or non-acid mediated. So what's our, what's our understanding of sort of the, the basic pathophysiology? I, th- I feel like if I asked a resident, they would probably mutter something about lower esophageal sphincter and then kind of avoid eye contact. How, <laughs> how, how do we understand um, at least pathologic GERD, which I guess it is by definition, how do we understand GERD to actually be happening? Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's a number of risk factors for GERD. Um, You know, you you really hit the nail on the head that much of it has to do with the lower esophageal sphincter. And again, we know it relaxes normally. That's part of its role. When you swallow food, it it has to relax to allow food to get it from the esophagus into the stomach. And again, we know that it will have transient relaxations throughout the day that allows you to vent air or anything out of your stomach and bring it back up. But patients who have, you know, reflux disease oftentimes have increased number or duration of kind of these, we call them transient relaxations of the lower esophageal sphincter. So if their sphincter is relaxed more often um, than normal, you can imagine that's why they might have symptomatic reflux because it's just allowing an open highway of gastric acid up into their esophagus, which is not really designed to handle that, you know, that degree of, of caustic injury. So, but that's really not the only risk factor. That's probably one of the most common but you think of other anatomic abnormalities that could cause reflux. So people who have a hiatal hernia, for example, you know, your, your diaphragm acts as a, a way to not only keep your stomach in your abdomen, and so it fixes it in place, but if the diaphragm gets stretched or, you know, has any defect to the cura, then that does not hold the esophagus and stomach in place. And if the stomach comes up into the chest, again, with the change of chest pressure, it just predisposes someone to reflux. And again, takes away some of that augmentation that the diaphragm has on the lower esophageal sphincter and preventing reflux. Um, We know there's other conditions that predispose people to reflux. So women in pregnancy are very likely to develop reflux and really in any trimester of pregnancy, and they may not have ever had reflux symptoms before until pregnancy. That's probably multifactorial and um, likely a result of hormones causing, again, relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter. Obviously, as the you know, baby gets bigger, just that pressure you know, in the abdominal cavity pushing upwards certainly can cause reflux and just it's taking up space. And that space pushes yeah, on the stomach right. and, and causes that. Uh, we know that patients who are obese are also at risk, risk of you know, reflux-related symptoms. Again, likely several factors, but if that increased abdominal pressure um, against the, the stomach causes food, to be, food or fluid to be refluxed up. So those are probably some of the main things. We will talk later about some of the lifestyle things that will predispose people to reflux, but usually those lifestyle issues are, you know, may cause reflux because of in combination with some of these other physiologic things that we mentioned. We won't talk about it more later, but if anyone has delayed stomach emptying, that's going to cause reflux as well. Thinking about anything in your stomach is going to go to the path of least resistance. So if you have a stomach full of food or fluid, and for whatever reason your stomach isn't emptying, whether that be from gastroparesis or narcotic use or any of those sorts of things, again, those patients may be more predisposed to reflux. I'm not sure if this is the right time to ask this, but as far as you described some of the symptoms and hiatal hernias, like they seem to be like a dime a dozen, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but just the, as far as like diagnosing somebody with reflux, it's, it's sometimes, is it as straightforward as people think? Like, are, can you just go by symptoms or is there, if you want to be a, 
like by the book about it, does it actually require like pH testing um, or like more advanced testing? I mean, I guess if you wanted to be really scientific about it and have to prove a theory, then you would have to do testing. But mm -hmm. I think clinically, that's just not how we practice medicine. It's yeah. certainly not a cost-effective way. So for most patients, making a diagnosis just based presumptively on symptoms of heartburn and regurgitation is what we do every day in practice. So you can feel pretty comfortable and symptoms are, are probably the most reliable at making a diagnosis. I think, you know, those symptoms in and of itself may not have as high of a sensitivity as we used to think, but I think it's it's quite good. And I think relying on symptoms for most patients is going to be the way to go. And again, clearly the most cost effective in that regard. Yeah. So coming from my, my usual baseline of a simpleton, in terms of diagnosing based on symptoms, is it better to have both? Like if you have someone who, so you mentioned heartburn and regurgitation are sort of the two mm -hmm. cardinal symptoms. If someone just has heartburn or someone just has regurgitation, can you be comfortable in the diagnosis or is it the combination that really sells you or sort of how do you, how do you parse through the symptoms, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah. Patients may just have one or the other. I'm th again, those would be the most common, but they don't need to exist in combination. There's also obviously more atypical features of reflux that patients may have. Nausea in and of itself could be a feature of reflux. Um, certainly, you'd have to think about other things that could be causing the nausea because since that's a little bit more atypical, you just couldn't assume that's reflux disease without really taking a uh, really detailed history. Um, you know, obviously, you hear of all the other extraesophageal features, hoarseness, enamel issues, but again, if you have someone with heartburn or regurgitation, I think you can feel comfortable making the presumptive diagnosis. If you give them a response to therapy, and again, we'll talk about that, but putting them on empiric therapy to see if that improves their symptoms, again, does that confirm the diagnosis? Not necessarily. I mean, the sensitivity and specificity of a PPI trial, again, is not perfect, but it is, again, it's the most cost-effective way to approach it and reassures us that probably something else more sinister may not be going on. Yeah. I think one of the challenging things that you get people with chest pain and you're you think maybe it's, you know, maybe it's heartburn, but it's, you're not exactly sure. Are there any other mimics or other other things that you really try to tease out when you're before you're confident calling it heartburn? Yeah, I think you you mentioned probably the one that needs to be on people's radar the most is non-cardiac chest pain. So obviously to call it non-cardiac chest pain, you have to first make sure it's not cardiac. Yeah. So that's kind of the cardinal <laughs> rule, right? Uh -huh. Reflux isn't going to, you know, cause sudden death, but cardiac issues certainly will. So I think for the patient with chest pain, you first have to rule out cardiac conditions before you do any kind of workup for reflux disease. And again, we'll talk a little bit later. They're a patient that you might not put on empiric therapy. The guidelines usually say that those patients should go for diagnostic testing if they have chest pain rather than an empiric PPI trial because they may not respond as well to a PPI trial. Um, and so it may, it may not lead or be as helpful in that diagnostic algorithm. Yeah. Okay. So any, and then I guess my follow-up question would be, are there any symptoms that, that someone tells you about, like where they're going to skip right to an EGD, like red flags that you, that you look out for? Yeah. So I think the, the red flags, I mean, we talked about chest pain again, first rule out cardiac disease, and then those patients oftentimes, and again, 
That's what the guidelines say. I wouldn't say that I always do that in practice is jump right to an EGD for that patient. If it's a 28-year-old individual who's complaining of chest pain, I don't know that I'm going to give them and do an EGD on them as the first test, even though the guidelines would maybe suggest that might be the way to go. If it's a 58-year-old person, then certainly I would just because, again, um, they're more likely to have some GI pathology, again, once I've ruled out cardiac disease. Dysphagia is probably the, the... alarm feature that we'd be worried about the most that would imply, do they have a a reflux-induced stricture? Do they have a cancer, something else? I think if they have notable weight loss, you know, maybe more than 5% of their body weight, if they have weight loss, though, that oftentimes is in combination with dysphagia, and that's why they're losing weight. I think if they have, you know, food impactions, that would be kind of a red flag to me. That would make you think of things like eosinophilic esophagitis, which we're seeing more and more. And then again, if you have a patient who at an older age and, you know, pick your age, 63, 68, who has sudden onset of reflux disease and they've never had it before, that would be an alarm feature that you'd think, wow, I don't know that I'd feel comfortable putting them on an eight-week PPI trial. I probably should evaluate this patient just to see why they've had sudden onset of, of reflux symptoms. And then again, even though there's not a whole biochemical workup that needs to happen, if you find someone that's iron deficient or has, you know, features of GI bleeding and they have reflux disease, again, would you do an upper endoscopy or a workup for that? You certainly would. So those would be the things that would pique my my concern of moving to an EGD right away rather than a PPI trial. And I, and I guess that begs the question, um, for, for someone with a suspicion of GERD as the diagnosis, who seems relatively straightforward, um, is there any utility, is there any kind of laboratory workup that you consider, any sort of other testing that you need to do other than maybe possibly the trial of impure PPI? Yeah, not really. Again, if someone is missing or has an absence of any alarm features and they have typical symptoms of heartburn and or regurgitation, again, you don't need to do an EGD. You don't really need to do any laboratory testing. So I think in that case, you would just go on to do um, a PPI trial. Now, if someone has any of those alarm features um, or if they have chest pain and they're kind of an older individual um, or if they have a lack of response to PPI therapy, an eight-week PPI trial, that would be an indication for an endoscopy. And then there's the whole you know, group of individuals who you might be worried about Barrett's esophagus, and they would warrant an EGD from the get-go, right? So someone with long-standing GERD, usually we define that as more than five years, you know, um, five to 10, but usually more than five. These are usually patients who are white, greater than 50 years of age, um, maybe obese or overweight, may or may not smoke. And then if they have a you know, first-degree relative with any upper GI malignancy, those things in combination would make you have that patient undergo an upper endoscopy just because of their risk of Barrett's esophagus. And I know this is maybe outside the scope of this episode, but um, I think this may even come up possibly on Twitter or maybe sort of internally. For those patients who are at risk for Barrett's esophagus, like what is, I guess, what is the utility of endoscopy to make that diagnosis? Do you then do go on to do serial monitoring or does that change your management anyway? Yes. If you do an endoscopy in that individual, again, longstanding reflux, greater than 50, who has one or more of those other risk factors that I mentioned, and you do that index endoscopy, let's say it's negative. They have no Barrett's esophagus. You don't need to later do another endoscopy years down the line to assess again for Barrett's. Usually the index EGD is the one that you're going to find whether they have Barrett's esophagus or not. If you find Barrett's esophagus, then you're going to biopsy it because it's both an endoscopic and histologic diagnosis. And once you've confirmed it's Barrett's by both of those measures, then you're going to do surveillance based on 
presence or absence of dysplasia and the degree of dysplasia. And so the intervals and treatment will depend on what the pathologist um, reads the report as. I think the last time I checked, and this was a million years ago, um, it, it, that had not been like really impacting mortality in any kind of meaningful way. Has that, has that changed more recently as we learn more about it? Um, that's a great question. I think we know that we're, we're actually more aggressive in treating Barrett's esophagus than we used to be. So, you know, in some ways you could say, you know, is it going to make an impact? Are we doing more endoscopies? So we're finding more of this earlier. And so, again, there's so many moving parts that what is the piece that's helping to, you know, change or not change any outcomes or mortality? Certainly high-grade dysplasia in the past, those would be patients that we would send for an esophagectomy, pretty aggressive, or definitely do pretty aggressive surveillance or local therapy. Now patients, even with low-grade dysplasia, we will put those patients through endoscopic therapy to try to ablate their Barrett's esophagus. Wow. So um, I think there is evidence that it does help, you know, decrease the likelihood that they will get esophageal adenocarcinoma in the, in the future, because that's one of the clear and known risk factors for esophageal adenocarcinoma. And we can do something about it if we see that precursor lesion, so to speak. And I know we're going to get into talking a little bit about therapy next. I wanted to ask with Barrett's, once someone has Barrett's esophagus, do, do they need to remain on a PPI for life? Is, is that one of the indications? Like if someone has a peptic stricture, like those people also, do they need to be on PPI for life? Yeah, there's really several indications that would warrant kind of ongoing PPI. One would be, you're right, a peptic stricture that has been dilated. Those patients should be on a PPI. It definitely decreases the risk of recurrent stricture. People who have had pretty significant esophagitis, you know, ulcerations at the distal esophagus, they should be on ongoing PPI therapy because once you stop it, they're likely going to develop that esophagitis again. Again, that would put them at risk for strictures or any kind of complications. But yes, those patients with Barrett's esophagus should be put on PPI therapy, even if they have not had symptoms. There's some suggestion that maybe that would, you know, if they have any dysplasia, would that, you know, minimize dysplasia or just with the ongoing inflammation? Again, most of them are asymptomatic, but yet they have clear pathologic acid that's putting them at risk for this Barrett's esophagus in the first place. Mm Mm-hmm. So do you have a favorite PPI? Are there, is there any, any indication that one's better than the others? Or once, can you comment on once a day versus twice a day if, if that first question's an easy answer? I don't think I have necessarily a PPI of choice. I think oftentimes I consider what's going to be the least expensive for the patient. Mm-hmm. So for some, it might be getting it over the counter. For some, it might be via a prescription, depending on what their copay is. Um, oftentimes, I will use either omeprazole or esomeprazole um, as first line if they're going to be get something over the counter. Otherwise, pentoprazole is one that I also may commonly use. Is one better than the other? Honestly, probably not. And so I think you could pick one, start with one. If someone does not have a response to therapy, then the question is, do you start switching between the different PPIs? And again, there's fairly weak evidence for that. But guidelines would suggest that maybe it's okay to switch once and to see if that makes a difference. But probably if you switch to one different PPI and that really doesn't make a difference, probably switching to the other PPIs isn't going to give you any additional, you know, sort of benefit. And in fact, I think there was one study that showed switching to a different PPI is probably, you know, about the same response compared to doubling the PPI, the original PPI that someone is on. So, 
you really have to pick different PPI, double the PPI. I always think probably, and we'll talk about later, the lowest effective dose of a PPI is probably the right one. So, and no one really wants to take twice daily medications if they can get by with once daily medication. Right. And I think we're going to get into the refractory symptoms a little bit later on. Yeah. So Matt, Matt being the typical internist has leaped right to the medications <laughs> rather than doing any kind of lifestyle counseling at all. <laughs> That's right. So, so let's, let's say Mr. Burns, happily, no, no alarm symptoms that we can elicit. He, he's not having dysphagia. He's not having weight loss or melanoma or or anything scary at all. He's, he's had the symptoms as we do a little bit more digging for the past two years. He tries Tums. Maybe it helps a little bit, but um, and now we are thinking PPI, which we talked a little bit about, um, and I think we'll get into a little bit more. But before we kind of go deep, deep down the well of, of medications, I wonder if, if you wouldn't mind sort of talking us through your your spiel for counseling for lifestyle changes for GERD. Obviously, understanding a lot of it will be patient specific. Yeah. And before I get to that, I would say, you know, you mentioned, do we give Mr. Burns a PPI, um, a PPI trial for eight weeks? I think when you go back and look at his history, he might be one that's clearly at risk for Barrett's esophagus. I know it didn't mention how long he's had reflux, but assuming he's had it for, let's say, five years, he has almost every single risk factor for Barrett's (laughs) esophagus. So he's probably one you would scope um, rather than doing a PPI trial as your first step. So I just wanted to make sure to feed that in so that people didn't think that maybe Mr. Burns was the best one for a PPI trial, because I think he's probably not. I think he probably warrants an endoscopy, again, assuming his symptoms have been ongoing going for, you know, five years or more. So I for life, oh, I said, I think we gave him three years. I think we make that number up okay. past two years. He says, yeah. So okay. not quite ready for endoscopy, maybe just yet. Yeah. So it's just been a few years. You're right. Then you could do PPI trial for sure. Um, but yeah, before you even go to a PPI, could you try lifestyle measures? I think we all do. We always console a patient on that. The question is, will lifestyle changes in and of themselves make someone's reflux symptoms go away completely and not require um, any medical therapy? Possibly. It depends on what lifestyle issues that or behaviors they're, they're doing. So we know there's moderate evidence for weight loss. And so we know that people who, even if they're normal weight and they gain weight, they can have the development of reflux. So weight loss in anyone who's either overweight or obese or has recently gained weight, I think there's moderate evidence that that would be helpful in controlling reflux. It's probably one of the hardest things to get people to do, um, but certainly something that they should be counseled on. We also counsel patients to elevate the head of their bed at night, either with wedges, you know, underneath their bed. Um, probably more helpful if they have nocturnal symptoms, which a lot of patients, if they have, you know, ongoing symptoms, may be their complaint that it's waking them up at night. That definitely leads to decreased, you know, quality of life if they're having poor sleep. So that's something that we'll often do. I usually try to tell them, though, that just propping their head up on more pillows may not be helpful. In fact, that could actually worsen it because it's bending them in half and actually putting more pressure on their abdomen. Whereas the goal is to really elevate just the head of the bed so their body is still at a slant and their stomach is, you know, technically below the level of their esophagus. So things would have to move against gravity to otherwise reflux up. So that's a helpful one. We also tell patients to not eat or drink for two to three hours before bed or I would say even recumbency. So if people tend to eat a meal and then just lay horizontally on the couch for several hours right after dinner while watching TV, that's going to probably precipitate reflux-related symptoms. So again, if they're going to do that, they should either be up on a recliner or chair or something where they're not laying completely flat. I think the one that we often tell patients to do that really does not have evidence to support it is we think of all of the foods that can 
sometimes aggravate someone's reflux-related symptoms. So whether it be, you know, coffee slash caffeine, chocolate, mints, you know, wine, spicy foods, acidic foods, any of those sorts of things, oftentimes physicians tell patients to avoid all of those sorts of things. But the guidelines would not suggest that we should do this blanket statement of having patients eliminate all of those foods that could potentially be triggers. Now, you if just made patient- a lot of friends. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. I like that. Patients are going to be high fiving people in the office tomorrow. <laughs> I think, though, if a patient has a clear pattern to their reflux, meaning they say, "Boy, every time I eat, you know, this kind of food or this specific thing, it always induces reflux." then that patient has the choice to either try to minimize that particular thing rather than global elimination. Or that might be a patient that if that happens infrequently, maybe that's someone who does on-demand therapy when they're going to be eating that potentially offending food to prevent reflux. Yeah, I wonder if it's just like the quantity of that specific food. It's like every time I eat six slices of pizza, I get reflux. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> I know that's that's maybe a personal example right there, but <laughs> right, uh, agita, as my mom would call it. Um, well... <laughs> Uh, the thing that's, can I just mention two yeah. other lifestyle things? I think yeah. um, Mr. Burns had both of these in his history. Um, tobacco and alcohol are other things that people often wonder, are those aggravating their reflux? And should we tell patients they shouldn't, you know, partake in either one of those? Obviously, from a physician standpoint, we're not going to advise anyone to smoke or use tobacco products. That's just sage advice. And obviously, using alcohol in moderation. But you know, both of them can have impact in terms of, you know, we know that eliminating them may have some effects on, you know, either reflux events or whatnot. But actually, when you look, it, studies have shown that if you eliminate either tobacco or alcohol from people's consumption and see if that affects lifestyle modifications, it really does not do anything to improve pH readings or any GERD-related symptoms in those patients. So, Again, maybe that's something that we don't want our patients to hear because then they'll be convinced that they don't need to stop drinking or curb their drinking or stop their alcohol. We should always continue to advise that. But it probably, those things by eliminating are probably not going to be the answer that's going to fix their reflux-related symptoms. Okay. So, and I think, and Matt, maybe, maybe you see the same thing. I know when I have a patient who's presenting to, say, a resident clinic with sort of classic symptoms of heartburn, I, I sometimes hear the resident say, I'd, I'd like to start an H2 blocker. I don't want to go as serious as a PPI because I think um, we hear the horror stories about PPIs. Like, I think we're trying to tie it to every complication known to man. I think I made the joke about you worry about the patient with C. diff pneumonia falling onto their osteoporotic hip. Like, it just <laughs> seems to do everything. So how how wamped up should we be about the, the safety concerns of the PPIs? Which are the ones to take very seriously and which are the ones that maybe have not been borne out um, upon critical examination? Maybe before I jump into the the PPI, you know, controversy and myths, you know, you mentioned, do you give them an H2 blocker? Is that a reasonable yeah. option? I think it depends on really the frequency of their reflux-related symptoms. So if you have someone who's just having intermittent symptoms, you know, less than two times a week or even less frequent than that, that's the sort of patient that either taking just antacids on demand might completely control that patient's symptoms or an H2 blockade over the counter might be very reasonable for them to take again if symptoms are infrequent in that regard. Once you have a patient who starts to have symptoms two or more days a week or they're really bothersome symptoms, that's the patient that you might consider putting on daily therapy. Now, again, 
a daily H2 blocker at low dose may be an okay place to start and kind of ramp up therapy in that regard. But I think most of the time, once someone's having symptoms two or more days of the week, that's someone that probably is going to have more benefit from a PPI compared to H2 blockade. So again, that's where all this, you know, concern comes in from a patient. They read, you know, everything that's coming, you know, in the news chatter about all of the side effects of PPI therapy. And when you look at recent years, just about every organ system has been linked to potentially some risk of, you know, being on PPI therapy. But I think you really have to kind of take a global look at the literature before jumping to conclusions. So many of those original studies were these large, you know, retrospective observational studies where you can imagine sicker patients in the hospital are often on more medications, including PPI therapy. So, you know, what's the chicken or the egg? Are these just associations because you're looking at sicker patients? Many of the studies also had very small hazard ratios. So again, it comes down to what is statistically significant and what is clinically significant. I think that often has to be to be asked as well. And many of these associations really don't prove cause and effect. Um, now, that being said, I think the, the number of potential risks that have been out there and that patients will raise as a concern, you know, the first one that drew a lot of attention was the interaction with clopidogrel. And I think now, you know, with additional studies that have been borne out, really that's probably of no clinical significance. And we can worry less about that than we initially did when that literature was first coming out. I think the other one that you mentioned was their effect on bone health. So again, people may understand that, boy, if you change the acid milieu of the stomach, does that affect calcium absorption and other um, absorption of nutrients that are important to bone health? Again, in a patient who needs a PPI, who does not have any known you know, risk factors for bone disease, there's nothing that you need to do differently. Again, make sure that they're, the PPI is indicated, make sure they're taking adequate calcium and vitamin D per their age and do, you know, bone densitometry, again, appropriate to age and risk factors. But other than that, you don't have to avoid them. Now, if you have someone with known osteoporosis, again, if they have a clear indication of why the, they need a PPI and the benefits are worth you know, more than the risks, then I think that's something that you need to just have a discussion with them on. I think the other risks that we hear about are, are infectious complications, especially um, of the GI tract, whether it's C. difficile or other enteric infections. So again, I think there is some data that would show that patients could be at potentially increased risk if they're on a PPI with enteric infections. And it makes sense. Our gastric acid serves as a defense mechanism and it helps, you know, kill off either spores or any kind of organism that might get into contaminated food. Now, does that mean someone who, you know, is going to travel to some, you know, area where they might be at risk of traveler's diarrhea should stop their PPI? Again, if doing that is going to lead to rip-roaring heartburn on their trip, that's not, you know, success from that standpoint. But it's, if it's someone who really has, you know, rare heartburn, that might be the patient that may be backing off on their acid suppression before they go on a trip or in a patient in the hospital who already has other risk factors for C. difficile infection, don't be starting that patient on a PPI unless they have a clear indication to be on a PPI, like a bleeding ulcer or something else. But again, we should be mindful of not starting patients in the hospital on a PPI unless there's clear indication. I think tying into that one is pneumonia. Again, that's another one people worry about. Some of the studies show there is an association with short-term use, which in some ways might not make sense. Um, so not a strong association, but again, it tells us that don't start a PPI in the hospital unless there's clear indication for it. 
Some of the other things are related to vitamin and minerals. So, you know, vitamin B12 metabolism, we know that that requires gastric acid to cleave B12 from various proteins in the gut. So over long term, you could imagine if you're on a PPI, could that affect your B12 absorption? Again, it's theoretically possible. Do we see with all of the patients, though, that are on PPIs, we don't see this widespread vitamin B12 deficiency out in the population, but it is one that has at least a physiologic plausibility and could be possible. Same goes for iron deficiency. Again, iron really requires kind of an acid milieu to help with uh, conversion to a soluble form. Could someone over time develop iron deficiency if they're on chronic PPI therapy? Again, it's physiologically plausible, but that also kind of assumes that these PPIs work so well that no gastric acid is ever produced and they don't ever absorb iron, which we know is probably not the case. Um, low magnesium is one that's also gotten a lot of attention. Again, there's probably some effect on you know magnesium transport with PPIs. That's not common. It definitely is drug-related, though, so something to think about. Um, renal failure is one that also has come out in the literature. Yeah. And again, we know that, the, I mean, that there's certainly some risk in those patients and probably the one that I think is, is something that we should be mindful of. And then dementia is also one that has come out again, probably not strong association to really warrant that. So again, that's a ton of information. So what do I do with all of that when I'm in the room with the patient, <laughs> yeah. right? So this is my take home of how I take the, that information and synthesize it for the patient. So First of all, if I'm going to put them on an empiric therapy, I plan it for eight weeks and eight weeks only and really revisit at the end of that. Is it really beneficial? Again, that eight-week trial is usually only once a day in the morning, taking 30 to 60 minutes before a meal um, and after eight weeks revisit. And then if possible, either step down therapy or again, consider getting them to the lowest effective dose. Next point, like I mentioned, just be wary of starting any PPI in the hospital and only do so if it's needed for a clear indication. Oftentimes, those patients are started on one and then it's continued indefinitely without any, any clear indication and may put them at risk of pneumonia, C. difficile possibly. I think for someone who you're going to continue PPI longer term beyond eight weeks, then you might want to have objective data to show they really have gastroesophageal reflux disease either with an EGD or pH. And we can talk about that later. Again, I think it, it warrants is the benefit of the PPI in this patient can outweigh any of those risks, whether theoretic or real risks. So again, if they have reflux disease and related complications of strictures, esophagitis, Barrett's esophagus, or there's someone on long-term NSAID use or has had peptic ulcer disease and needs to be on an NSAID, again, the benefit will clearly outweigh any of these theoretic risks. Again, put them on the long, uh, lowest effective dose, stop it when no longer needed, so I've asked my colleagues, what do you do with all of this? Like, do you recommend testing for any of these laboratory studies, whatnot? And this is just some of the collective input. Again, this isn't guideline-based. You won't find this necessarily in a summary paper. Probably worth considering checking uh, creatinine once a year just to make sure, again, there's no effect on renal function. Try to stop anyone from knowing that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. like they, we get monthly creatinines in healthy patients, so that should be right. no yeah. problem. So once a year. So once a year. Um Vitamin B12, probably consider maybe every five years. We know that vitamin B stores last for a very long time. So again, probably every five years is adequate. And again, assuming that someone is on the PPI this entire time during mm -hmm. those five years, not just the eight-week trial. Um, worth considering a CBC every few years, again, just to make sure they're not iron deficient. So whether you need a complete blood count or just checking a serum ferritin, that could be debated. And you really probably don't need to check magnesium levels unless someone is having symptoms related to magnesium deficiency. Did you see there was 
this had come up in my in like the journal watch back in August. There was it was not a trial specifically of safety of PPIs, but it was a, a like a big randomized trial where they they were looking at using PPI versus no PPI for patients who were on like rivaroxaban and aspirin, and then they looked at the safety data. These patients have been followed over three years, and they didn't really see signal for like at least in three years ckd or the the infections like it wasn't you know it kind of blew up a lot of a lot of these claims that are out there mostly from like observational stuff so again it's hard to know too when you look at like i said some of the studies you mentioned chronic renal disease because that's the one that again i think there is some concerning trends and there's several mechanisms by which that could happen Um, some of it could be chronic so is three years enough time to see those changes in the study um, I still think, boy, you know, you'd hate to miss that. So I think having some assessment of renal function every right. few years is reasonable, at least until we have more longitudinal data, even more so to inform these decisions, yeah. I think is reasonable. I've, I've met multiple patients and people that are like, I've been on a PPI for like decades at this point. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Amy, can I switch, switch gears or, or move back slightly? I wanted to ask you, Okay, I'll tell you what I was doing and tell me tell me if this is wrong or tell me tell me what what you would do in this situation. So you have someone who's on a once or twice daily PPI, they're still saying that they're having GERD symptoms, they're trying the lifestyle stuff, at least they tell you they are. Uh what about adding an H2 blocker as needed? You know, if they're having a real bad day, they take that on top of the PPI or you just tell them, "Well, okay, you can take antacids, you know, as needed." Um, usually I give them, I, I'm like, don't take like 10 tums a day because that's a huge calcium load. But right. what, how do you, what, what sort of adjuvant therapy? And then, and maybe even if you want to talk about sucralfate, which, uh, I probably pronounced wrong, but that is a medicine that I, I have, I, I don't know if it works. I suspect it probably doesn't, but I, I, I've used it before. I will say that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, I might, I might be taking that out of your armamentarium tonight. So, oh no. <laughs> so, I think if you have a patient who's on, let's say, once or twice daily PPI therapy, there's a fairly large number of patients that are only going to get partial relief, you know, of their GERD symptoms on that. So, I think that's where you have to kind of go back to the basics. First of all, are they compliant with therapy? Because we know probably compliance is an issue. So many patients don't take their PPI correctly. Again, we tell them that they should take it 30 to 60 minutes before a meal. Guidelines would suggest the first meal of the day is probably the best one. Um, So again, taking it 30 to 60 minutes before a meal, assuming it's one of the typical kind of delayed release PPIs. And then again, reiterating those lifestyle um, measures that you mentioned. If someone has, you know, despite their once or twice daily PPI, ongoing symptoms, you've checked in con compliance, timing, lifestyle, like I mentioned, you could switch to a different PPI, you know, one time, see if that makes a difference versus increasing to twice a day. If you haven't done that, that would be reasonable. And then the question is, is adding the nighttime H2 blocker really of benefit? I think if you have a patient that's clearly having breakthrough symptoms at night, is it reasonable to, to add that H2 blocker to see if they get benefit? I think we see that done very commonly in practice. I think what some studies have shown is 
those patients often may develop tachyphylaxis, meaning they may get some initial benefit, but it will likely wear off and that benefit will, will be lost thereafter. So I think once you've done those steps to compliance, dosing, timing of dosing, looking at different PPI or not doubling the dose, if the patient is still having ongoing symptoms then, that's really where if you have not scoped them, that's the time to then. They've really yeah. failed this PPI trial, scope them, um, and then go on to either you know pH impedance testing if the EGD is unremarkable. Actually, the, the um, guidelines from the American College of Gastroenterology would say that sulcrophate really does not have a role in the management of, of gastroesophageal reflux disease, um, other than potentially as a, a potential role in those patients who are pregnant, although PPIs are fine in pregnant women and probably would give them additional benefit. When do I ever use that medication? I wouldn't probably use it for treatment of reflux. I might use it in someone who has a non-acid-mediated ulcer. So let's say someone who's had a RUI gastric bypass and has had an anastomotic ulcer that may not be acid-mediated. That's where sulcrophate may have a role. Okay. Is it just is it just a coding agent as yes. it's described? That's, yeah. that's it. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we, we talked a little bit about the refractory GERD. The I don't know that any of my patients, I've never sent anybody for a pH study. Is this happening behind the scenes when we send people to gastroenterology, they're going to get a pH study if they have refractory symptoms and the EGD doesn't show what's causing their symptoms? Yeah, so the EGD would be the first step. And if someone has visible esophagitis or Barrett's esophagus, that by nature defines that they have gastroesophageal reflux disease. You don't need to do a pH impedance in that patient. But you can imagine most patients will have a negative upper endoscopy. And so in that patient, to really be able to prove whether or not they've ha- they have reflux, they will need a pH and, imp- or, and or impedance test. So the difference is pH test is really just doing that. It's checking the pH of the fluid and it correlates it with symptoms. The difference with impedance, which we tend to use a bit more in clinical practice now, is it's not only mentioning or measuring acid versus non, it measures acid versus non-acid. So not just pH, but it measures the non-acid reflux events as well. And so again, you might have someone who, you know, is having symptoms from non-acid mediated reflux. And again, it's going with symptom correlation as well. So that's important. But in that patient, that, you know, quote, refractory GERD patient who's failed all of these, you know, anti-secretory therapies, their EGD is negative, that's someone at least to confirm whether or not this is truly reflux. And that's what that test pH slash impedance would be really looking out to do. You'd really want to remove them from those therapies for about a week before putting them through that study. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, if it's negative, you're not sure, well, are you just suppressing acid? And that's why it's a negative study. So for that to really figure out the initial diagnosis, and it's a patient that, you know, you think is low risk of having reflux, again, the 28-year-old otherwise healthy person, then you should do that pH or impedance off therapy. Now, the guidelines would say if you have someone that you really are suspicious of reflux, very typical symptoms, risk factors for symptoms, but yet they're not responding to PPI therapy, in that case, you might do the pH impedance on their therapy to see if the symptoms that they're having are from breakthrough acid. Um, so that, that's probably the hardest clinical dilemma we have is do we put that, take them off their therapy or not for that study? And it really is based on our suspicion of how likely we think they have reflux or not. I'm happy, I'm happy to leave that one to you all. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so you mentioned way back before, but so let's just straightforward, uncomplicated GERD. We feel good about it. You treat with a, the lowest tolerated dose of PPI for eight weeks. I have a question about the duration. Mm-hmm. 
How does that work? Because what I'm hearing for the most part is that GERD is not this sort of hyper acidic state or even necessarily hyper secretory. It sounds like it's more mechanical sort of lower esophageal sphincter. How does, why are things better after eight weeks of therapy? How does, how does sort of just decreasing acid secretion for that time ultimately yeah. solve the problem if it's structural has not changed? So the eight weeks is really in a way just to, it's a clinical, it's an empiric trial. It really is to give you that reassurance. Does this, is this responding? So I can feel pretty good that this is reflux. Again, it's not, it's not a perfect test as an empiric trial. And so um, patients may have benefit and they may not have reflux disease. But I think the eight-week trial is really just to show that's long enough that if they do get improvement of therapy, that it makes you feel more reassured about the diagnosis. You're right. The physiologic problem or whatever put them at risk for the reflux in the first place isn't going to just magically go away in eight weeks. But at that eight-week time period, if they say, yes, all of my symptoms have completely gone away, you feel pretty good this is reflux disease, then you have a decision to make. You really at that point want to see, do they need a daily therapy or could you try to either put them on intermittent or on-demand therapy or consider either then stepping down therapy to an H2 blockade to see if it still controls symptoms. If it doesn't and they have breakthrough symptoms despite tapering down or intermittent therapy, then that gives you that justification that this is someone that will need to go back on daily PPI therapy, again, at the lowest effective dose. So you're right. It doesn't solve anything. It's just really, that's the time period that we think we really need to really convince ourselves that if it responds, this is likely acid related and it's re related to reflux. Gotcha. Thank you for that. Do, yeah. do PPIs work for, for intermittent dosing? I, I always thought they didn't. I thought you kind of had to take them and, and they have to build up in your system to, do you, do you mean like if someone's having like a bad couple of days, they, they go back on them and then stop or is it just taking yeah. one dose? Or let's say, I mean, either one, let's say someone typically notices that their, you know, reflux related symptoms are worse with traveling or, you know, eating out at a restaurant. And those are really the times that are provoking their symptoms. And they don't need it every day because those sorts of risk factors or events or exposures are not taking place every day. That might be someone that just needs it intermittently, you know, take it, let's say they're going out to dinner. Again, even though the empiric therapy says take it first meal, you know, before the first meal of the morning, I have patients that they're only, um, you know, provoking sort of events are an evening dinner out at a restaurant. Well, I'm not going to have them take it at breakfast for that sort of prevention. So that might be someone who could take it intermittently 30 to 60 minutes before going out to dinner if that seems to provoke their symptoms. Um, or if they have worsening symptoms with travel where their diet is a bit off, maybe they'll take it every day for three days if they're on a, a weekend vacation where they think their reflux uh. may, might act up. So um, they wouldn't need to take it every day unless, again, in stepping down therapy, they're starting to have breakthrough symptoms more than twice a week. Then that probably tells you that they will need daily therapy and are not going to be one that's going to be as successful on intermittent therapy. Hmm. Okay. Oh, I know. I know what I wanted to ask. Uh, before we move on to talking, I, I, we do want to talk about this Pepsi a little bit. You, you mentioned what about the person that's been on, you know, been on the PPI for ten years? Uh, is there any chance of getting this person off? Like, do they have to wean down the dose? Is their body like going to hypersecrete acid now? That's the theoretical thing that I've heard people worry about. Or yeah. and I've just I haven't had great luck in clinical practice trying to take people off a PPI. Yeah. So if someone has been on it for a long time, you know, they've really kind of 
you know, their acid producing cells have gone somewhat dormant with that prolonged therapy to some degree. So you're right. If you take someone who's been on daily therapy for a long time and you abruptly stop it, oftentimes within the first few weeks of stopping therapy, they will have oftentimes horrendous you know, heartburn or reflux, probably worse than what they might've had in the beginning before you started the medication. Mm -hmm. So in knowing that if you have some reason to, you know, abruptly discontinue or the patient really wants to come off of it because maybe they're developing something that you're not sure, is this at all related to their PPI? I often will tell them to start to taper it. So again, there's no science to this. Again, I don't know that you'll find this in any sort of, you know, paper, but what I tend to do is I try to have them initially take it every other day for a couple of weeks And then maybe, you know, every third day for another few weeks before they taper off. And that might just help at least kind of regulate those huge gastrin surges that might happen when they're just cold, you know, stopping their their PPI therapy. Amy, before we move on to our next kind of uh, a topic that's sort of adjacent to to this, I guess literally adjacent to this. That's um, right. Can you tell us about surgery? Like who, who should we, who should benefit or who might benefit from surgery? Yeah, I think the patients, you know, with reflux that might benefit from the surgery, it's the the most important thing is to make sure you're picking the ideal candidate. So if someone is not an ideal candidate, it actually may worsen whatever symptoms they have going on. So it has to be a patient who has typical symptoms Mm -hmm. or fairly typical symptoms that, that is then responding to PPI therapy. So if a patient is not responding to PPI therapy, it's quite unlikely that an anti-reflux surgery is not going to help them because they probably have something else going on concurrently, whether it's dyspepsia or some other you know, GI functional disorder that might be causing their symptoms that is not going to get any better after a, um, a, a procedure in that regard. So it might be the person who just doesn't want to take lifelong medication or you know, they really have concerns about the, any adverse risks of the medication and they either don't want to take it anymore or they would like to come off of it, but they have ongoing symptoms. I think those are patients who, if responding to PPI therapy, would be great candidates for surgery. I think those patients, though, that have a lot of other symptoms, like those who have significant bloating at baseline, they're not going to do well with an anti-reflux surgery just because you develop, many patients may develop a gas bloat type of symptom because they're not as able to belch as easily after surgery. Mm -hmm. So if you're already bloated at baseline, that's a problem. If they have any dysphagia at all beforehand, even if their you know, EGD is unremarkable, that is a patient who's probably not going to do well with uh, a surgery. So um, those are important things to consider. If they have a large hiatal hernia, again, that might be a great candidate for surgery because you're fixing the anatomic abnormality that's probably predisposing them to you know, reflux in the first place. And then the other group is if you have patients who are obese who are also having reflux, um, they might benefit from a surgery, but rather than an anti-reflux surgery, <clears throat> a RUI gastric bypass might be the right answer for them. It not only will help with their obesity, but that will have pretty significant impact on improving their reflux-related symptoms as well. So I think that, you know before we send someone to surgery, they're all going to have had an EGD just to make sure there's no abnormal pathology we should be aware of. If they don't have reflux esophagitis or other, you know, features of obvious reflux, they should have a pH or impedance study to, again, prove that they have acid reflux disease before you're going to put them through a surgery. And typically, surgeons will want to also see an esophageal manometry just to make sure that patient does not have scleroderma or achalasia. Again, if you take a patient with either one of those conditions and you do a fundoplication or a wrap, 
you have a patient who has you know, an aperistaltic esophagus, and then you do a wrap, they're just not going to be able to swallow effectively after that. So that's why esophageal manometry is typically done before fundoplication, just to rule out those conditions. I I always, like, when I was reading about this, it, it sounded like, I'm not sure if this is the right way to think about how the surgery might help, but the the acid blocking medications don't work. There's like a significant amount of patients supposedly that doesn't work for, and maybe that's because while it's decreasing the acid, it can't really help the regurgitation piece. So if they have the acid reflux and you're, you're treating that medically, but the surgical, the fun application, doesn't that kind of fix the regurgitation a bit by like tightening up things? Yep. You're able to successfully suppress their acid with medications. But again, if they still have ongoing regurgitation and that's symptomatic, that's a person that an anti-reflux surgery would be helpful. Um, and that's where an impedance study could be helpful because, again, that might be someone who's on a PPI therapy. You're seeing that their acid is suppressed, but if they are clearly symptomatic when they're having regurgitant events on that impedance and you can correlate those two that will show you or convince you at least or convince a surgeon that doing an anti-reflux surgery will help those, you know, prevent those regurgitation events and will help with their symptoms. Paul, do you want to take us into the, the uh, I guess we could call this like a lightning round or the o- overtime, the, the bonus part of the episode? Yeah, sure. We'll, we'll talk about Geraldine Payne. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I gave her the middle name of Iris, just, just in case anyone's wondering um, where the terrible <laughs> pun is there. So she's a, a 47-year-old woman. She's got a past history of depression and anxiety, which is managed primarily with talk therapy. She's coming to your office with four months of gastrointestinal symptoms. Specifically, she says she has some early satiety, uh, but she also feels after she eats that she just feels especially full and kind of bloated. And she reports occasionally that she has some epigastric burning as well. It doesn't really go anywhere after meals. And these occur most days of the week. She's concerned there might be something really wrong. I think she's probably sort of secretly worried about malignancy. And she's she's asking her primary care doctor for a referral to gastroenterology for evaluation. So I, I guess for our new patient, how would you sort of characterize these symptoms and kind of where do we go from here? Yeah. So she, you know, just based on the symptom complex, and obviously you do, you know, a additional history and, you know, um, elicit other symptoms that she might be having, do a full exam. But I think she has symptoms that would be fairly typical of dyspepsia. And, you know, by dyspepsia, the the kind of definition of dyspepsia and how it differs from reflux that we just talked about is with patients with dyspepsia, epigastric pain is the predominant symptom. So they may also have other associated symptoms like, you know, nausea or bloating or, or they may have heartburn, but pain is typically the predominant symptom. So could that still be reflux? I think if they have heartburn or regurgitation with pain, that I think you would manage that as though that patient has reflux first and foremost. But if they don't have heartburn or regurgitation and pain is the predominant symptom, that would be someone that you would kind of put in this category that this is likely dyspepsia. And again, as in this case, she didn't have any other features of radiation or anything to suggest, is this biliary colic or is this something coming from you know another organ that might have radiation somewhere? So in the absence of that, and again, she's 47 um, and, you know, otherwise fairly healthy. I think labeling this as a patient with dyspepsia and managing as such would be would be completely appropriate. Paul had sent out a, a really nice article from the New England Journal. Um, Paul, what was this from like 20, 2015? I want to say. Yeah, from 2015. And they, they talked about kind of splitting dyspepsia. I had heard of the term functional dyspepsia, but I didn't really know 
I guess I didn't really know the symptom complex that much. It sounds like what you're getting at here, she kind of has both. There's like, there's two types now that they split into like epigastric pain type or Mm -hmm. yeah, epigastric pain syndrome and then the postprandial um, distress syndrome. And it sounds like this patient has maybe features of both of them. I don't know. I, I think that would be helpful to look at in clinical practice. Do you do you think of it that way or do you have a better way to separate them out? No, I think that's really helpful. So you mentioned the word functional dyspepsia. Now you almost have to put that on the side because to label someone as functional dyspepsia, that means they have dyspepsia where an EGD or other necessary tests have ruled out other organic pathology. Mm-hmm. So she's almost a case of uninvestigated dyspepsia at this I see. point. Um, but you're right. There's, you know, there's really almost two subtypes, but there definitely can have overlap. So one patient could both have the epigastric pain syndrome or the postprandial postprandial distress syndrome. So the person with the pain, you know, epigastric pain and burning are their predominant symptom. Those with the postprandial distress syndrome, they typically have kind of fullness, early satiety, those things that come on after eating what would be deemed an otherwise normal sized meal. But like you said, in this case, you could have patients who have both the epigastric pain and the postprandial distress syndrome overlapping, which is not uncommon. But it is helpful because I think in clinical practice, um, you know, we'll talk about the management, but when it comes down to kind of the algorithm of how to manage these patients, once you've done the first few steps of therapy or management, I think certain therapies for empiric therapies might work better for one of those populations versus the other. So, um, yeah, I think it is helpful to, if you, if you can put them in one or the other, it might be a little bit helpful in choosing your first line therapy after you've gone through H. pylori assessment PPI trial, then you get to this catch bag of managing them based on their kind of subtype of, of dyspepsia. And I'd like to clarify I just so I want to make sure that I'm understanding correctly. In order to label something as functional dyspepsia, endoscopy is sort of a requisite part of that definition. You actually have to define that they have sort of no pathologic features. Yeah, to label it as functional dyspepsia, you're right. You really, that's only after they have had an EGD to rule out other organic pathology. So I think most of what we see, you know, and like I said, in this patient, this would be uninvestigated dyspepsia. And that's important because. Most patients do not need an EGD. Probably most patients that you're seeing in clinic will not need an EGD. Um, So I think that's important. That's why I bring it up because by saying, you know, by mixing in functional dyspepsia, that almost is implying that everyone needs an EGD before we can call them dyspeptic, which is not the case. So I think for the uninvestigated dyspeptic patient, such as this patient who's less than age 60, you actually don't need an EGD and you would go on to kind of an algorithm of specific therapies. Right, because I think it was 2017, I guess, was it AGS that just updated, or maybe maybe I'm misquoting all this all over the place, you'll correct me, but where like they, they endoscopy is sort of no longer the preferred sort of initial investigation for someone without alarm features because the diagnostic yield for scary stuff is is just so very low. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, it was uh, American College of Gastroenterology guideline. Um, so you're right. They At that guideline, they changed kind of the age at which you should consider an EGD. In the past, it was if you were 55 you know, years and older and you had dyspepsia, they, those patients should have an EGD. Now they've increased the age from 55 to 60. So again, anyone under age 60, you don't need to have them undergo an EGD before you start empiric therapy or other testing. They actually went as far as to say, even if you have someone under age 60, even if they have an alarm symptom, may not be enough to warrant an upper endoscopy, <laughs> which yeah makes a lot of us nervous. But I think when they looked at the yield of patients under age 60 with a single alarm symptom, 
Um, the yield of finding like gastric cancer, which is what people are going to be worried about, is super rare. So the likelihood of finding something bad in that subgroup is going to be less than 1%. So you can imagine if you endoscoped all of those patients, you know, 99% of the time, it's going to be, you know, of low yield. So uh, yeah, really, they have said that, you know, again, under age 60 does not need an EGD and in the presence of an alarm feature. Now, obviously, like I said, guideline is a guideline and we have to take in kind of the clinical picture as well. So if I had a 58-year-old gentleman who had a first degree <laughs> family member with gastric cancer, I'm going to act differently than I probably would in a different scenario. Or I think you have to take into consideration what, you know, were, were they born in Southeast Asia or South America or other areas where the likelihood of gastric cancer is higher compared to if they were born in the United States? I think those are something to think about. I also think even though the alarm features are not synergistic, boy, if you have a patient that's coming in with, you know, they've lost five to 10% of their body weight and they have this, you know, and they're only 53 years old, I will probably get an EGD in that patient, you know, because that just makes me nervous. Um, but again, I think we just have to reassure ourselves that the yield in, you know, of someone under age 60 with a single alarm feature is probably going to be very low. Yeah, I'll probably let my friendly neighborhood gastroenterologist make the deferral that's right. to, to EGD there. That's right. <laughs> okay. That's right. So yeah, if they're over age six, they're, if they're six year older, they should get an EGD as the first kind of step in the workup of dyspepsia. If they're younger than that, then what you actually do, and this is again a bit of a change from prior guidelines, testing and treating for H. pylori if positive is actually the first step. So the last guideline said we had an option, PPI trial or test and treat for H. pylori. And they're probably similarly effective in controlling symptoms, but based on more kind of cost effectiveness, it's probably actually beneficial to do the H. pylori test and treat. And part of that is because we just got done talking about PPI therapy. What happens in a dyspeptic patient, you put on a PPI, they're often continued on it like indefinitely and no one ever stops it. So um, that's why H. pylori test and treat is actually higher on the management algorithm for the dyspeptic patient younger than age 60 at this point. So in that patient, you... Oh, can you be specific about the test? Is it yeah. the breath test or the stool antigen? Or can we can we send the serology and if it's positive and they've never been treated, just treat them empirically? Yeah, I think the serology has completely fallen out of clinical favor. So, um, in fact, we don't even have it available to order at our institution anymore. So, we just don't order serology. So, you really want to do a test that's looking for active infection. Yeah. So, you hit the nail on the head, either the urea breath test or a stool antigen. So, I think it really, you know, which one is better than the other? I think it's just the test that gets done. So, um, surprisingly, I just don't have any issue with patients providing a stool sample for their H. pylori stool mm -hmm. antigen. So I tend to get that more often just because the breath test can have false positive or false negatives depending on, you know, recent antibiotic use or, you know, other influences. Yeah. Whereas even though that's possible with the stool antigen, it's less likely. So that's the one that I tend to get because it's, it's probably the quickest to get um, from that standpoint. Yeah, I think it, it, if they're already on a PPI, right, there's a waiting, isn't it, like a two-week right. wait usually, which is, right. I seem to get that patient that, probably not for this indication specifically, but that, that seems to come up fairly often where they have to wait off the PPI. Right. Okay, so then then if the, if the H. pylori is negative, then you could do the empiric PPI trial. 
That's right. Then you would do an empiric PPI trial. And again, you could do it very similarly to what we talked about for reflux. Give it a time-limited course, eight weeks, once daily therapy, see if they have any benefit from that PPI trial. If not, then the guideline brings you down to this area of your next options would include like a tricyclic antidepressant um, or even a prokinetic agent. Now, the prokinetics make us nervous because oh, we yeah. don't have, a, we have very few of them and they're fraught with potential, you know, awful side effects of tardive dyskinesia. So this is kind of where it almost in my mind and kind of my, what I do clinically goes back to figuring out what subtype my patient is in. If you have a patient at, you know, bringing down the algorithm, they've H. pylori negative, they don't respond to a PPI trial, and they have more of that epigastric pain syndrome, that's someone that probably will have more benefit from a tricyclic, such as amitriptyline, compared to other things. And again, I think one study has shown specifically that in that subgroup with the epigastric pain syndrome, tricyclic medications would be beneficial for that group. For the patients who have the postprandial distress syndrome, that's a little bit more challenging. Usually that might be because they have, you know, do they have something kind of wonky going on with their gastric accommodation or whatnot? Um, again, I'm, I'm not going to put that person likely, at least in my practice, I don't feel comfortable putting them on a prokinetic because if I'm not their primary person and they're going to move, you know, go back to their home state, who's going to be watching and stopping therapy after the, you know, requisite number of weeks to avoid side effects. And that, again, this is just something that I use clinically. I'll often in that group consider something like buspirone. Again, it might help with some, you know, relaxation of the, of the stomach. And that might at least clinically help in those patients with that more postprandial distress type of syndrome. And then if all else fails, you're supposed to get them involved with, you know, a GI psychologist or cognitive behavioral therapy to see if that would additionally help. Oh, I mean, I guess the tough part there is which one. Like, I just I have so many referral sources. I, I hate to upset one of them. Right. Sure. This this seems like a difficult one to treat. And I, I was reading too. It's like you can also try complement complementary alternative therapies, acupuncture, and there's this Iberogast um, type of like some sort of supplement. Yeah. That yeah. St STW five or Iberogast, which um, has been studied in dyspepsia. Now, again, some patients will find it beneficial. There have been some cases of patotoxicity in Europe that have been um, associated with one of the ingredients oh of that. But I think the guideline really does not give any strong evidence to any complementary therapies or even acupuncture. There's just not strong enough evidence. Um, and a lot of those therapies, you don't know what is in a lot of those complementary yeah. medications. So I think you have to be wary of that. Um, I think the other thing that we, you know, we kind of, I don't want to say glossed over, I glossed over before we even got to that algorithm is it's important before you go down this pathway of, you know, based on age, EGD or PP or H pylori test and treat is make sure that you've looked for other things that are causing the dyspepsia that you could easily, you know, reverse. So are they on an NSAID, which could cause dyspeptic symptoms? And so maybe just stopping the NSAID gets rid of their dyspeptic symptoms and you don't have to do any of these things that we've talked about. Or, you know, do you have a patient on opioid medications that's slowing their, you know, delaying their gastric emptying, causing dyspepsia? I think you have to make sure to, at least in your history, look for some of those other common causes of dyspepsia and manage those first if you think they're present before you kind of go down this diagnostic algorithm. Because again, you can imagine you might be subjecting a patient to a medication that they may stay on for a long time, what it could have been a medication that was initially triggering the symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. The prescribing cascade. That's right. One of my least, one of my least favorite things that exists in medicine. <laughs> um, 
Paul, do we have any more questions? I, I think we have to let Amy go. I think that we do. Yeah, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I think I think we're okay. Oh, it's been fabulous. You guys have uh, given me some great entertainment for the night. <laughs> I've learned a few things from you guys as well. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know about that, but uh, did you did you want to leave the audience with any take home points? You know, I think the take home points is that um, both reflux disease and dyspepsia. Well, you could spend a lot of money in the workup of these patients, but really the most important and the evidence-based approach is, um, you know, to really look at cost-effective ways of approaching them. Again, dealing with the low-hanging fruit, make sure there's no um, things in their history and their medications that could reverse either of these symptoms. And if not, then it really is a risk-based approach in terms of age, other features, other associations before you simply send them down the endoscopy odyssey um, versus <laughs> medication odyssey. So I think we can do a lot of extra testing in these patients that is not necessary. So I think really following these both guidelines, the one for reflux disease and dyspepsia, I think is really helpful in clinical practice. All right. Thank you. Last last question for you. Did you did you want to plug anything? Uh your residency program. Uh. Oh, of course I want to put in a plug for my residency program. I'm just hoping that when they listen to this, they'll stay engaged till the very end and they won't correct any of the things that I said that they don't agree with. All um, right. But no, they're, um, my chief residents are, are huge fans and they were super excited for me to be able to spend the night with you too. All right, cool. Um, well, thank you so much. This is, this is very fun. I learned a lot about the... Uh, I learned a lot about this, uh, things I was doing wrong. Usually, <laughs> I haven't, I don't think I've been pointing them out as much as, as usual, Paul, but I definitely no. learned a lot of things that I've been, I've been doing wrong. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, back to self-flagellation. I feel like that was a part of the show that, we're, that we've been missing. It really, it really was. All right. Thank All right. You. Well, All thank right. you both. Have a good night. Amy, okay. this is wonderful. Thank you so much. You too. All right. Take care. Take care. All right. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Oh, oh I thought I had blessed <laughs> silence for one minute. I, I was, I was uh, falling asleep on the job. <laughs> that, that, was, that was a journey. That was an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. But to do that, we need your feedback. So send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. And I wanted to give a special thanks to Dr. Paul Williams for uh, coordinating this episode and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. I almost forgot here, Paul, that uh, we also have two great artists to thank for this. Uh, Beth Garbs Garbatelli helping out with the infographic and Kate Grant for her beautiful cover art. Thank you to Beth and Kate. Um, I'll remind you that the, the wonderful music over playing my voice right now is was, was composed by the one and only Stuart Kent Brigham, who is not here tonight. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye.